This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Welcome to my new weekly podcast where each week I'll be joined by leading coaches, athletes and educators from the world of sports and far beyond. Each episode I'll use the guest's journey, their stories and thoughts to compare with my own experiences coaching at the elite level to pull out some great tips and useful advice around all things performance and that often mentioned but also often misunderstood word culture. Currently I consult with some of the biggest sporting and corporate organisations in the world from Premier League football teams to American sporting institutions but I'm probably best known for coaching the Fiji National Rugby Sevens team to world titles and the country's first ever Olympic medal, a gold at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Of course, I'll draw on that amazing journey, but also on the lessons I've learnt and the principles I've forged over the last 20 years working in professional sport. And that's really what inspired me to start this podcast. I wanted to swap notes, glean tips and talk performance with some amazing people. The first of which is my good friend, writer and broadcaster Tom Fordyce. We actually went to Cambridge University at the same time, but it wasn't until my role coaching the England Rugby Sevens team that our paths properly crossed. Tom was working as BBC Chief Sports Writer, a job that he had held for over 20 years, and we've been friends ever since. Currently, he stars in the extremely popular Peter Crouch podcast and has now set up his own podcast network, which includes shows like Death of a Sports Star, which I really recommend. Tom actually ghostwrote my book, Seven Seven, and he's also written many other great sports biographies. And just a quick note, this chat was actually recorded pre-COVID, hence why I'm out in the open in Regent's Park, London. As I've said, in future weeks, I'll be joined by guests to find the signals that have propelled their own careers. But for this episode, Tom was good enough to help me explore some of the subjects that will come up over the course of this programme, from star players, enjoyment, managing egos, my concept of guardrails, experience, culture, the use of technology, and much more. But we started by focusing on a subject close to Tom's heart, endurance athletes, and in particular, triathletes Alistair and Johnny Brownlee. I hope you enjoy. They train unbelievably hard. I mean, they are, particularly Alistair, will force himself to do things that most people couldn't force them through in terms of the the pain of the training and the endurance and everything else but there's one fundamental thing that means they can do that and makes them successful and it's that doing the training or, or immersing themselves in their sport makes them happy let's say there was no such sport as triathlon yeah didn't exist their dream day would still be to go for a swim in a lake go for a massive bike ride through the Yorkshire Dales and then go running up the Chevin, which is the big sort of country part, the hill above Otley and Geisley around there. That's their dream day. So maybe in some ways they've been lucky and they have found a sport which enables them to do all the things they wanted to do. But I think it's probably the other way around. Their environment is so integral to what they do. If you took the Brownie boys and you had them growing up in southeast London, I don't think it would work the same way. But because they love the Dales with a passion and the bike rides are an exploration for them and the running is, I wonder what's down that path and can I get up that hill before my brother? Do you think that's their why or do you think it's just, it's more the joy of what they're doing or do you think it's their driver? Was it a combination? It's a good question because their background, you know the, the stereotypes of successful sports people are people trying to escape something or get to somewhere and there's often a story of deprivation 
or trying to prove yourself to someone. And that doesn't work for those two because they've got a very middle class background. Parents both, well, mum's a GP or was a GP and, and dad works at Jimmy's, the, the, the children's hospital mm. in Leeds. So they've got, they've got nothing to run away from. But Alistair is, in particular, is an absolute stone-cold killer in races, in a, in, a, in a brutal way. So I think if you think about the, the men's triathlon final in Rio in 2016, so the two of them are away on the, the run leg, so the final part of the three elements of the race. They've pulled away from everyone else, so they know it's those two alone. And Johnny looks at Alistair, Johnny being the younger brother, looks at Alistair and says, I think we've broken them. And at that point, Alistair looks at Johnny, knowing his brother as he does, and thinks you've settled something here and attacks him attacks his own brother which he has to do because they Mm. are rivals and goes away and I remember watching because you get you know it's like you get very privileged positions doing the job that I've done for a long time and I was right on the finish line and you're beyond the crowds because the crowds are on the home straight and it's this weird intimacy where you see them coming through the line and you can hear the noises the, the slap of the feet on the blue carpet and then Alistair's noise as he crossed the line, he lifted up the tape, the finishing tape. You wouldn't have heard it on TV, but it was quite primal. You know, this is a nice middle-class kid from a posh part of West Yorkshire who has managed to push himself in a way that a lot of people can't. So whenever I watch those two, I think, why do you do what you do? And there must be an element of happiness because, again, another one of those narratives we find in sport is the idea that you shouldn't let elite athletes be happy should you because they'll get satisfied apparently it's a sign of weakness and you know if you start to see people that are smiling and and not frowning and uh and looking concerned then you've not you've not got them in the right place and i'm I'm totally opposite that in my experience when i've seen these athletes carmelo anthony is a really good example when i was uh, watching him train at the new york knicks first one on the court and has to get dragged off you know and he's got he's got a basketball court in his in his house and he invites his mates most of them NBA stars to play pick up basketball before the season's starting because he loves the game. It's like the poem that Kobe Bryant wrote, Dear Basketball, that ended up winning him a, an Oscar for Best Short Film. And I'm very much paraphrasing him here, but it's fundamentally Dear Basketball, I will always be that kid with a rolled up sock trying to shoot hoops in the waste paper basket in the corner. It's, it's, it's why do you push yourself through all the things that elite sport demands of you? And it has to go back fundamentally to why you do it as a kid, which is pleasure mm. and enjoyment. And the pleasure can come from pushing yourself, can't it? And having to get through very difficult situations. But the players and the athletes we most enjoy watching are generally those who make it seem like play. You watch Messi, you watch Leo Messi, and clearly he is what I argue the greatest footballer ever. But you can see him, the way he runs, his body shape, the way he takes on players. You could, he's a street footballer, isn't he? Yeah. Rooney was a street footballer, they yeah. used to say just that pleasure in losing yourself in the sporting moment and your body being capable of doing things that most people's bodies can't controlling that moment and just being yourself in that moment I guess it's an understanding then so if you're a coach on the sideline and you're seeing one of your players doing trying a trick trying something that's that they want to do because intrinsically it feels good and 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 it's fun and it doesn't work it goes back to creating those guardrails a set of agreed rules where inside it everybody feels safety and belonging and purpose and status and security but all of that I guess has to be communicated so everyone knows what's what's happening do you think the guardrails are vital for success or do you think you can be a bit more flexible can you have um, some grey for your star player because you need him to get a goal at the weekend but he might have turned up late or done something he shouldn't have done the week before do you play the long game or do you think you you don't have to 
the superstars are different, aren't they? This is the thing. If you're trying to have a guardrail for an entire team, sometimes the real superstars just operate differently. Like the stories from Phil Jackson when he was at the Lakers and he had Shaquille O'Neal and he had Kobe Bryant. So Kobe Bryant was an obsessive trainer. Like Carmelo Anthony had to be the first one on the court, had to drag him off, totally obsessive, would watch about all the tapes, all the time on his laptop. Whereas Shaquille O'Neal in that period where they're both the Lakers didn't want to do the physical training because he didn't feel that he had to and he felt better enjoying himself and then coming to the court. And a lot of the problems in that Lakers team were around those two different models and the two superstars mm. in that team. And you know what Phil Jackson's like? He's into his, you know, his, his native... Yeah, yes. his zen and his, yeah. his, you know, the Native American philosophies as well. And he knew at points when he was trying to get Kobe to do stuff. There's a line he said once which was, I could feel his hatred. But he was all right with that as a coach, which is difficult, isn't it? Because a lot of coaches in that situation are going, hang on, I'm the boss, they're my rules, they're, these are my guardrails, you have to stick to them. Yeah, I mean, you're jumping straight into a, a thought then for me, which is around ego and managing your egos, because that's a great example of how important ego can be in sport. It can derail you if the head coach suddenly decides that it's my way or the hard way and he doesn't want to lose face to a player. Or he can have softer skills on actually understanding that there's a there's a point of difference and there's some genuine advantage to be made by as a coach sticking yourself in the in the, the back of house and being a bit more humble. Does that still mean though that for those guardrails that you've seen examples of um, a team or individuals where he doesn't have to be there on time, he doesn't have to turn his phone off at half times, he can do what he wants, he can wear a different kit. Do you think it makes a difference if that superstar, or I'm assuming it's the superstar, but the person who's climbing over the guardrails, if they are performing, does that give them a get-out-of-jail card with their teammates? It's whether, again, whether they're performing this Saturday, but you know that the, the aggregation of poor behaviours by breaking those guardrails is going to mean that eventually they're going to do something even significantly catastrophic in the other direction, that all that good stuff is going to just suddenly un- unravel. It's that expediency versus practicality balance isn't it you could tell yourself as a coach this goes against my principles but if this player scores the goals that get us up I will then have the money to do x y and z to do all the other things I was just wondering whether you've seen any other examples where you treat someone differently is it that is a good example here the whole Kevin Peterson in the England cricket team where at the start it was okay he's doing stuff that we can't do and then as his career developed there was that sense of actually if he's not in the team we're in trouble because I remember doing the Ashes series in 2010-11 and chatting to some of the Aussie players beforehand they do a little media gathering and the Aussies you know classic Aussies very open they chat away and one of them said to me that the only batsman in the England team who scared them was Peterson because he said you've got other batsmen who can score 200 but they'll score 200 over two days so Peterson can score 200 in one day you know, it was that it was the same hold that Flintoff had had old, o- over the, the the Aussies maybe sort of five years before, and that Botham had had over them, what it had been twenty five years before, twenty years before. But there came a point with Peterson where his behaviour off the field was so damaging to the rest of the team that clearly they had to say, right, you're out of the team. But because of what he could do on the pitch, that decision weighed so heavily on the people who had to implement it that that in itself almost became a distraction, didn't mm-hmm. it? The debate, every time a new batsman came in, he was going to be compared to Peterson. And every time England lost a test match, it raised the thing of what will happen if had KP been in there. Mm. But you got the sense that he was, towards the end, that he was unmanageable. 
that it had become so much about him. Because sometimes you do hear about those characters that can deliver those world-class performances that a certain coach hits all the right notes with them, but then for most of their career, they'd not found that coach. And So, for example, the Firth of Fourth Bridge, right? You know, would you drive over it if there were no sides on it? Yeah. The, the chances are no. Or you might drive really slowly down the middle. Have you ever hit the side of any bridge you've ever driven down? Most of us would say no. So they're there for containment and hope that you never have to use them. And and do the better coaches then with those top players? Is there something that they do to give them those that containment, which gives them a bit of safety to be themselves? And that allows them to really be their best version. And maybe those other coaches' ego gets involved. Maybe they get a bit too tight on their on those bridges, they make those, the, the sides a bit too tight for them or a bit too obvious or they talk about them too much. There's an example from when Fabio Capello was managing England. He was really old school, really old school. So he brought in some rules which probably made sense to Capello and had certainly worked for him in the past around diet. So when you were with England, he banned tomato ketchup and he banned butter. Yeah. And it just riled all the players because they thought, yes, I know tomato ketchup has got a lot of sugar in, and I know it's got a lot of salt in, but the amount of physical work we're doing, it felt to them like an unnecessary intrusion from the outside and that it was Capello's Italian mentality failing to bend to the English way of doing things. Do you think it was about the ketchup or it was, it was more about the significance mm. on being more professional? For me, if you don't have anything that's been... So going back to that, so there's a few things that, that you picked up on leadership teams. I, I'm not a massive fan of having you know, your senior leadership team, and that gets talked about a lot, you know, after all sorts of games in different levels at different sports, they'll talk about, oh, well, you know, the senior leadership team got together. You know, if you've got a proper group of players, group of athletes, then you've, you've got a leaderful team anyway, and you're creating almost another tier of, of decision-making that potentially could distract you, potentially. And I guess then the, the second thing is that catch-up, was there any connection there? So did Fabio ever say to the players... Look, I want you to be off the catch-up because I want to show other teams that we're taking things more professionally, that these small edges are, can be found everywhere and that you guys have got to agree to do this because actually it's, it's about the bigger picture. Or did he just say, no catch-up today, fellas? Yeah. So he was asking the players there to make what seems from the outside like a small sacrifice. So there were other rules that he brought in which would seem to make a lot of sense and some of the players liked. So he banned mobile phones from the dining room because right. he wanted his players to talk. And there's a story of, it might have been Emil Heskey, or someone had accidentally left their phone in their pocket and it rang and Capello lost it. And you know the big metal tureens that you might get <laughs> past the surfing, just smashing the lid off one of these things. But I wonder whether his those things that made sense to him and may well have worked on their own were harder for the players to accept because they didn't feel that he was committing to them in the same way. So he never moved permanently to, to England. Mm. He didn't really try to learn English. I remember going to his press conference when he was unveiled, not far from where we are in Regis Park over in Lancaster Gate. And he had a few stuttering words of English, but was committing to learning English. And for the players involved, the fact that he was asking them to do, make these sacrifices, change, 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 that he wasn't changing, that he went back to Milan at the first opportunity, that all his backroom staff were his traditional backroom staff, that they didn't, the backroom staff sometimes weren't even introduced to the players, that they didn't bother learning English, yeah, and that the players, when they would go to the team hotel, would see the backroom staff behaving as they would in Italy, which sort of makes sense. They'd be sitting around with their espressos in the lobby, and the players would feel like they couldn't communicate with them. 
so for me that hits upon a couple of things one one is as a coach you've got to connect what you're trying to to envisage so whatever your plan is you've got to sell that to and they've got to understand it but also you can't you know the standard you walk past is the standard that you become that I bang on about a lot but effectively if you're head coach I would suggest that you've got to lead by example and have consistent behaviors there's a good example there that you gave with Fabio Capello but then we've seen other coaches in other sports that might get some very high short-term success but they are not delivering the same values that perhaps the team are doing it's where all of that where it sticks and whether it's actually important and for me I think it's vital but we might sit down we talk about the mobile phones you know I I ban them from players pre-olympics and in the olympic games but explain why and I think if most players were told look you're not going to be on your phone for two weeks but at the end of it you're going to get a gold medal most people would probably you'd do that trade right but then you hear someone like Steve Kerr Golden State say that he just couldn't do that with NBA players and so he has to find another way to control something that could be a problem because as he says if someone's on the phone at half time in an NBA game it's probably not good news he's probably not asking so his agent's not saying you should be defending more or passing more and so it's only going to be to the detriment but he's saying that's just not controllable it might be in college basketball but not in the NBA and I guess it's test it's, it's road testing like is this important and I remember one story you talked about with Laura Trott and Jason Kenny, two amazing Olympic cyclists that decided that a couple of things they would do in their build-up to the Olympics was, and one of them was not to make mashed potato. Yeah. Yes. Now, for most people listening, they probably think the mashed potato is quite a good carbohydrate source. But what was the reason? Like, where does sacrifice and not having that fun around what you're doing? So the story with the mashed potato is that... As a cyclist, particularly as a, as a track cyclist, and if you're doing the, the shorter events like, like Jason, that any time on your feet is a bad idea. So cyclists always have this thing that, you know, you, you always take the lift. Even if it's one set right. of stairs, you take the lift, which is baffling to people on the outside. They'll be thinking, hang on, this person is in absolute peak physical condition. They can win multiple Olympic goals, but they're not going to take one flight of stairs. But it's that, it's protecting your legs. So the mashed potato was, if you're standing up, and then you're using your upper body, even just a mashed potato with your with your masher, whatever it's called, <laughs> then you're just taking a little bit out of yourself. Is that what counts? That there'll be one or two things going right into this kind of the Pareto's law that you know there's certain things that are going to weigh far more significantly on success. Do coaches even know that they're finding Pareto? Will Jurgen Klopp know that the way he he's with the players and that love that you can almost see between them? Does he know he's that's probably the most significant thing he does it's not the gps data he's collecting all the passes or the signings or the transfers but it might actually be creating a situation where your boss you really feel that love and he's got your backing and you can go out and do your thing safely have you seen you probably have there's an amazing clip on youtube and i think it's about six minutes long and it's klopp after liverpool have won the champions league beating um spurs in madrid in 2019 and the clip is simply him going round congratulating the players and you're watching it and you're thinking it's quite a long clip and then as it unfolds you realise what you're watching so let's say he talks to it's not just the players it's the backroom staff as well and it's the players who have travelled but not necessarily got on the pitch so let's say there are 25 people he goes up to there's the fact that he makes the effort to go up to 25 people not just Divock Origi who scored the second goal or Mohamed Salah who scored the first and then you realise what you're watching. So 
when you and me were, were doing your book, we got uh, our own greeting, didn't we? Because yeah. you were a handshaker and I would go for hugs. We've, we've got a halfway house. You watch Klopp and he has got a different greeting for every single one of the players. As in, not him deliberately thinking, right, I've got a special handshake. It was everything he said to the, each individual player was unique to them. There was no generic fist bump or high five, slap yeah. on the back, well done and move on. He held each of them in a different way and said something different to each of them. And it was a really powerful thing to watch because it's exactly what you said. Does he know he's doing that? Is that instinctive to the person he is? Has he thought, I'm going to go and speak to each of these 25 people involved here? I don't know, but you could see the effect. It's clearly a, a very emotional moment for all of them, but it's so intense. It's so intense with each of them. And I, you can't hear what he's saying in their ears, but you just know that there is a connection a really powerful connection between him and every single individual. So could you kind of unravel that a little bit and from that ability to individualise each greeting, could you then take that a little bit further and say, well, that's because he's spent time knowing, getting to know them. Is it important then to know about their family, their background, their why, their drivers? Does it mean that then because of that individual stuff, he's consistent in the feedback he gives them and he's honest? Is your instinct from everything you've seen from just that small moment, could you then almost immediately see why they're successful? Yeah. There's something I noticed with you, Ben, in terms of how you coached, and it's summed up by the image where your Fiji team has won Olympic gold, and this is the image that ends up appearing on currency in Fiji. So you've got, you've got your team who are celebrating, and then you're on the shoulders of... Whose shoulders were you on? Apeside Domalaila. Yeah. And bearing in mind that you've just your team has just won Olympic gold... Your celebration is somewhere between self-effacing and embarrassed. Like you've sort of got your arms up, but you haven't. It's almost like you don't quite know what to yeah. do with it. And when I look at that, I think about how coaches can sometimes make victory all about them, that they are the most important person. And you are naturally quite self-effacing, aren't you? But in that moment, that seems to sum up for me one of the many reasons why you were a great coach. It was you'd always had that thing about almost making yourself redundant, hadn't you? Whereas for a lot of coaches, it's the opposite. If you think about someone like Jose Mourinho, his whole strategy is to take the heat off his players by making it all about him. Mm. So let's say they've had a bad game, he will say something controversial in the press conference knowing that that will be the story. So he's, he's trying to do the same sort of thing, which is, look, help his players, but make it all about him. I don't know many other coaches who've been able to push their ego to one side as much as you have. Like Capello couldn't do it. Capello, it was about him as a figurehead. So how could you do that? Is that just something which is your personality? Is that something that other coaches could borrow? This might sound a bit trite. Um, some of it's actually from, <laughs> I joke about it a lot, being ginger, um, that you often like feel like you haven't got a voice when you're growing up. You know, you're the odd, you're the odd one. You're not seen as being particularly um, attractive. You're the one that can be a butt of jokes, but it's really okay because they're ginger. Um, and perhaps you slowly kind of just find your way in the pecking order for things. And um, and then you remember that when you're moving through about how to treat people well. But I also think that I've definitely had issues with my ego in the past. And, you know, you, you, you wonder why you suddenly, like, you're climbing into a, a referee during the game or having an argument with your assistant coach or your physio. I've... I've changed defensive patterns when the when the defensive coach was was away for the week because I just got got on my high horse about something and it just suddenly ran away from me. So I think experience is a lot to do with that, but I'm 
absolutely certain that Ego has to be parked as a head coach to allow the programme to flourish, really. But I guess it, I guess it's all that art science and it's all about personalities fitting into different different areas. I think it was maybe Sven Gorn Eriksson that, that coined the phrase or talked about it first about cultural architects in teams. And and so for me, I'll say Akulinasal, the captain, you know, he was my cultural architect. So he was then saying the same things, acting the same way, consistent behaviours, same messages. And so was my team manager, Rapati Calvesi. And so I think in, in great teams, I mean, I don't know who would be doing that role in Liverpool at the moment, for example, that would also be somebody that was aligned to watch Klopp or, or are they Maybe all Henderson. aligned? Maybe Henderson, yeah. Or could you even argue in the great teams, they've all, they're just full of cultural architects. Mm. The perfect bit where they're all full of, it's a leaderful team and they're all culturally aligned as well. And there's that line from Andy Flower when he was coaching the England cricket team. I think it's in the documentary The Edge, which is about how they got to number yeah, it's one. Cracking, yeah. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. And how they then fell away. And he's clearly a very driven individual who's not particularly naturally warm. He's, he's almost the opposite of Klopp. So he made himself into a great batsman, although technically he maybe wasn't because of his determination and doing things properly. And there's a bit towards the end of that documentary where he's stumbling towards... You can see him trying to process some of the stuff that the players have said to him and stumbling towards what his learnings from that experience would be. And I think he says something like, if I did it again, I'd spend more time coaching the man, not the player. That is it, isn't it? He would be trying to get, say, Steve Finn, the bowler, to release the ball slightly differently so he wasn't no-balling all the time, or he'd be trying to get Jonathan Trott to, to you know, maybe, maybe uh, change his initial trigger movement at the crease. But fundamentally, it was what Trott was going through as a man that affected his batting, and it was... Steve's, Steve Finn's lack of confidence in what he was doing that was breaking down the physical processes. Yeah. But you, I mean, that seemed from the outside to come quite naturally to you with Fiji. I don't know if you had to make a, if you went over there and thought, this is something I haven't done before I want to do, or this is something that's worked for me before. I think, I, I think, for, I think a combination, yeah, I think it probably is more me than not me. Um, and I think I learnt perhaps doing it the wrong way with England only because sometimes and I guess you've seen this like the increased amount of people getting involved in systems the amount of technology the amount of data amount of noise so even for something like an England 7 setup or England rugby setup you know these guys are going into training with a GPS unit on their back and a heart rate monitor on their front they've probably done a hydration osmolarity test to get their hydration level they've done a wellness questionnaire when they've woken up they might even have an accelerometer on their mattress to measure how good their sleep is and then they've gone in to do a meeting with the with the doctor or the physio and they've done their prehab and everything else and that's before they've even stepped onto the field but all this becomes your noise and if you're not careful you forget about actually what's going to make a difference and Whenever I see a team that doesn't operate as well as they possibly can or something goes wrong in their programs, it's never because someone, no one's turned on the GPS or you know, someone's slightly <laughs> yeah. under or overhydrated or yeah. their heart rate's been uh, heightened by something. It's normally because something in their culture or something in their re- relationships generally in teams, mm. head coach with an athlete, athlete with athlete, breaks down. I guess part of all the, the chats having on, on this is road testing this and whether it is as important as perhaps you think it is but there's, there's something else when you were talking about the, the consistency that I thought of as, as an example and Team Sky or Team Ineos have had admirers and their detractors down the years and I think probably rightly so they've done some things really well and some things where they've probably fallen short of their stated aims and the state ways of doing things 
and Dave Brailsford as, as the team principal has probably done both those he's done some things which have changed the way sports teams will be run in the future but also some things that he will probably regret around the way he's dealt with some people there's one thing he does really good and there's a phrase that's stuck in my mind and it's compassionate ruthlessness so and people can relate to this outside of sport as well it's basically how do you deliver bad news so you've got to do that as a coach all the time haven't you I'm not picking you I'm picking this other guy or I'm going to sell you or you need to do this basically delivering bad news and that temptation that all of us have wanting to be liked and then maybe wanting to take the edge off it but as a as a coach or a manager or whatever it is in high performance you have to be honest because if you lose the honesty you've gone and what Brailsford seems to be good at is that compassionate ruthlessness so being able to say so when Bradley Wiggins becomes the first British man to win the Tour de France in 2012 and he appears at the opening ceremony of the London Olympics a month later and he wins BBC Sports Personality and he's got his sideburns. Brailsford had already realised that Chris Froome, who had finished second in the 2012 Tour, was a better long-term bet. So he picked Froome as the team's leader for the 2013 Tour and not the national hero, this great, this man who won it all. And that's a really hard decision to make. And then he's done it again recently where he's decided not to renew Chris Froome's contract. Chris Froome, who has now won four Tour de France and eclipsed Wiggins' achievements on the road. But again, he's made this decision. Actually, I've got Egan Bernal and I've got Geraint Thomas. I can't fit all three in. So he's had to have the conversation with Chris Froome, who he's shared all these, these great victories with, to tell him, basically, I'm dumping you. The trick to be able to exit someone from a programme at just the right time is, you know... It's a special skill that not many of us have, really. Do you think that is absolutely vital in any sort of high-performing programme to be able to have those honest conversations said the right way? I think it's hard to argue with honesty, isn't it? If someone presents a cogent case to you of why they're making a decision, it almost strips the emotion out of it. And it doesn't become, the coach doesn't like me, or I've done something wrong. It's, I mean, you don't need to take this down to the sort of the numerical example of here are, here are a pile of stats that show that X is a better option than you. But it at least explains that decision. And there have been other coaches where they didn't think it was, they had to explain any decisions because they were the boss. You just accept it. And I think in those cases, particularly now, the way that players expect or, or athletes expect to be treated, you have to do more of that explaining. You have to show your, show your workings out. Otherwise, it will spread through the rest of the of the group they'll be that well hang on if it's happened to them it could happen to me and then people are starting to lose their confidence and they're starting to play within themselves and take less risks because we've all seen that in elite sports haven't we where players play safe because they don't want to take get criticism and it's not hiding per se because they're still out there but they're just in that split second they're not trusting their instinct they're taking the safe option because it's the i won't get in trouble option cycling's an interesting one so coming into the next Olympics now you know they're not one of the top operating nations but there's things that they'll probably do to get those additions and the tech is is one of them the tech packs that they'll put on and every everything else I work with Nike and innovations and some of the projects are about you know something that might help across in football or you know just a bit softer touch or whatever it is is that something that could distract or do you think there's a place for it in modern sport from the people I've spoken to it's it's a weird thing in that it can have absolute practical applications that help you. But there's also the placebo effect. So the, the British cycling track team, 
going into the Beijing Olympics knew they had these amazing space age suits and when they're when they're at the world championships earlier in the year they deliberately wore all their old kit and they were still beating their arch rivals the, this is the team pursuit they're still beating the the Aussies and that gave them this massive psychological boost because they had total faith in the secret squirrels as they called them the guys mm. coming up with the the technological jumps and it was okay well we're performing like this in the old stuff so when we put those skin suits on it's like a superhero pulling on his cape and maybe that was as important to them and it certainly had an effect the other way so i think it was coming up to london 2012 where the french track team got absolutely paranoid about the new wheels that the yeah i remember the quote yeah yeah, that the wheels were somehow rounder yeah they the the team gp had rounder (laughs) wheels and imagine if you're a french rider and they'd say some superb rides particularly in the sprints and you've always been the best in your age group and you have committed totally to your sport and you've fulfilled all the protocols you have to do. You've qualified the Olympics and you're going to the absolute peak of your sport and you're in great shape. And then something is just planted in your head that there's something that you... It, it's not quite a reason for failure, but it almost gives you an excuse, doesn't it? It's almost, well, I can't compete with that. Hang on, they've got rounder wheels. Like that must be, you have to be incredibly strong mentally to not let that, that little burr stick to you somehow. Thanks so much to Tom Fordyce and his amazing insights. And if you want to listen to more of his dulcet tones, then find the Peter Crouch podcast on the usual platforms and also shows on his new podcast network, many of which he's written himself, like Death of a Rockstar, Death of a Sports Star and We Didn't Start the Fire. It was really great to explore some of the subjects that will come up with my guests over the course of this programme. And I'm really looking forward to bringing you so many more conversations with athletes, coaches and all manner of people from the high performance world. You can find out more details of the show and relevant links in the podcast description. And please subscribe on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts and specifically it would be brilliant if you could head to Apple to leave a review to help more people find out about the podcast it really does make a difference this has been the Ben Ryan podcast thanks for listening